Guys, let me uh, share my screen with you this morning. I'm just going to show you a couple of slides and then we'll work through the teaching text uh, that we just read. Uh, apologies, pressing the wrong buttons here. Okay, so we've said a couple of weeks ago, and we say this at the beginning of every single gathering, that our faith as Christians hinges on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Without death, without resurrection, there's no Christian faith. It's a historical fact. It's a dogmatic proposition. It's a piece of doctrine. We have to believe it. We have to accept it. And I'll get back a little bit later uh, just to the fact that we should accept resurrection in faith. We did say in our We Are Gospel-Centered sermon that the death and the resurrection is very important, and this was our theme for this weekend. So a panic attack, that's Thursday night, and an empty tomb, a journey to life through death. So we spoke about Jesus on Thursday, we spoke about Jesus on Friday, we thought about Jesus yesterday, and we are speaking about Jesus again today, because in the end, it is all about Him. So our theme for today is the empty tomb equals new everything. The empty tomb equals new everything. And I'll get back to the theme and what that means for us. Let me just start off by giving us an illustration for the resurrection. Now, let's be honest, guys. Neither an illustration nor an analogy will ever have enough substance to really be a good one for the resurrection. But I do want to just loosen up an experience inside of us, something that we can connect with. Think for a moment about a bad day at work, wherever your work might be. Okay? Bad day at the office, bad day at the university, bad day in your home office, bad day parenting, like a bad, bad day. It feels like nothing's working. It feels like nothing will ever work out again. And it really just feels like, I often use this phrase, that you want to go and lie on your bed in the fetus position and just cry it out. Okay? Think about a day like that. And then think about a booking that gets confirmed. A booking that gets made. A booking for a holiday, right? The holiday isn't now. You're booking it for the future. But how does that change your feeling of a bad workday? So I use this as a picture, as an illustration. I mean, these seats can resemble pretty much any seat that you might travel on. Okay, so I didn't only want to put a car seat or a plane or whatever, but like that's the seat. I will be traveling one of these days. It makes a difference to the now, doesn't it? It makes a difference to a poor work day. It makes a difference to the fact that you know that something will be coming that will make this a little bit more bearable. There's proof that something else is coming, and that is my booking confirmation. Made the booking, paid for it, it's coming, it's gonna happen. And I'm looking forward to it. So whenever I have a bad work day, whenever it feels like nothing wants to work out, I look forward to the booking. I look forward to my holiday. I look forward to traveling. Let me use another one. So myself, I love summer. I'm a summer guy. And there's really only two reasons for it. One is that the sun comes up early in the morning, and I love that about summer. 
And the other one is I get to wear shorts and flip-flops. I mean, shorts and flip-flops, I believe, is the uniform of the people. You know, I'm joking, guys. I'm joking. I'm joking. But that's why I really love summer. The other reason why I love summer is I grew up in Pretoria. And I don't know about you guys, but winters in Pretoria is rough. Okay? It's dry. It's brown. It's dusty. It's cold in the morning. It's cold in the evening. I mean, it's quite okay during the daytime. But you always have that in-between weather, right? So you get dressed at 7 in the morning, and uh, it looks like polar circumstances. And then at 12, you feel really itchy and hot because now it's 21 degrees, what's going on here? But then you have an evening function where you actually need a jersey and a jacket and a beanie and gloves. I'm not a fan of winter. So there's something that always points me towards the summer, and that is the blooming of the jacaranda. Okay, now a lot can be said about the jacaranda as a species in the bot botanic makeup of Pretoria. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reminder that summer is almost here. It's coming. So the jacarandas bloom around October, November in Pretoria. So there's always this reminder that one of these days it'll be proper job summer, right? Low 30s. Flip-flops and shorts, summer holidays, early sunrise. Yes, man, I can't wait for this. These are two illustrations for the resurrection. It's a confirmation of something that is coming that makes the present more bearable. And it is a experience of what is coming, even though it has not happened fully yet. Do you guys get me? So running in the streets of Groenkloof, over the jacaranda flowers. It's not proper summer yet, but we're almost there. And I'm already experiencing it. And then I also have to take my allergy medicine because I just took a nice big swoof, you know, of, uh, of all the seeds and all the plants. It's the same with my holiday booking. Not on holiday yet, but I'm getting there. And I'm looking forward to it. So hold on to these two illustrations as we navigate through the teaching text this morning. So here's our plan. I said the theme is an empty tomb means a new everything. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the empty tomb first. And I want to say we're going to get our facts straight because there's a lot of facts, historical facts that are true in this part of scripture. And then new everything is our implications. Because, I mean, that's a one line to describe the implications of the resurrection. And that is a new everything. Okay, so what's everything? And what's new about it? I really want us to get our fingers into that. Okay, so let's get the facts straight of the resurrection first. The event of the resurrection. The Greek word, the anastasis, that happened, is not described by the evangelists. Okay? None of the evangelists actually tell us exactly how the resurrection event happened. What we have of the resurrection is reports of people who saw it. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we have this really spectacular account, right? Of God's shaking and an angelic being, right? Sitting on this empty tomb. It's quite spectacular. It's a phenomenal account of the story, really. What I want you to see, though, is that the empty tomb, that's the first thing we see, can actually be described as circumstantial evidence, right? And it begins to awaken the faith that he might have risen. So there's no body there, which is like the first checkpoint. 
I think that he might have risen. I mean, there's other ways that a body could escape a tomb as well. People could pick it up and take it away, as an example. If you keep on reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that that's actually a story that people made up to say, well, now the fact that the tomb is empty, we need an explanation for it. The explanation can't be that he was resurrected. So let's make the explanation that someone stole his body. So it's circumstantial evidence that he might have risen from the dead. But I want you to see that the real proof of the resurrection, get this, is the encounter with the risen Jesus himself, described in verses 8 to 10. An encounter with the risen Jesus, described in verse 8 to 10. I'm going to get back to this when we speak about hope. It's like the holiday itself, right? So you have the booking. That's the evidence that the holiday will come. But you're not on the holiday quite yet. Once you are on the holiday, then it becomes real to you. Let me just say, I made a joke about the gods shaking. So in the context uh, of this story about the resurrection of Jesus, um, the description of the gods, right? It says they were like dead men, takes on almost a comical aspect, right? You guys remember cartoons uh, where something would happen, boom, pow, and then everyone would fall over. Like that's the kind of description that Matthew puts in his gospel at this point. Right? Matthew narrates it as the earth shook and the angelic being came down and all the gods just fell over. Right? It takes on that kind of comical aspect. But think about this now on a deeper level. Who was the person who said he is really the Christ? He is the son of God. He was a Roman centurion. He was a Roman soldier. And on the Saturday, the Jewish council asked Pilate to put even more soldiers there to guard the tomb. So the confession that he was the Christ, the Son of God, came from a God. Now just imagine that person's emotion, right? Think back to Good Friday. We saw the earth shaking. Um, We saw the curtain in the temple tear. We saw Jesus exhaling his last breath. And then death and silence. This centurion must have stewed on the fact that we might have killed the son of God. The guy who was right about what he said, because I believe this now, I see it. And now you have to guard that tomb. Do you think that you were scared guarding that tomb, wondering if something might happen in that tomb? And now something happens, right? It's like the worst nightmare. It's the worst fear. And that's why it gets described like that. Oh, guys, please forgive me, right? I am a teacher by gifting, and I wrote a little note here on my notes. Don't explain this. Just mention it in passing. And it feels like I spent 15 minutes now going down this little rabbit hole. But rabbit holes is my game, guys. Anyway, are my game. Rabbit holes are my game. Okay, let's get back to the focus of the narrative of the proclamation that Jesus was raised by the dead, right? Jesus was raised from the dead, was the key element that was preached by the early church, by the apostles, and by the disciples. It's a, we can call it a hallmark of the Christian faith, down to the present. Now, what we have here is an eyewitness account of what happened and how it happened. And I want you to see that we actually don't have any category for this because this was a historically unique account of someone being raised from the dead. Was there stories about people being raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead? Yes. Were they all true? Well, we can't tell, but we know someone like Lazarus who was raised from the dead. That was most definitely true. But this person 
being dead and being raised from the dead and taking on the body that he took on and taking on this manifestation of God himself, that is a very unique story. And that's why it's difficult for us to classify it because we don't really have a category for it. We don't really have something similar that we can compare it to. It is what it is. And what it is, is Jesus Christ risen from the dead after his crucifixion. Now, what I want you to see, and as Zita mentioned this when we read the text, and I think Warren Denny said it as well, it is very striking. Um, it's actually astonishing, to be honest, that women became the first custodians of this message. Think about it. The women were there last, and the women were there first. I don't know if you guys saw that verse in our reading yesterday. As Joseph of Arimathea is preparing Jesus' body for burial, it says, Mary and Mary sat there watching. It must have been quite awkward if you think about it, right? I want to see what's going on here. There's no other men to look because they all ran away, but I'm not going to leave before I see his body go into that tomb. And Joseph going, ladies, are you right? Okay, there, <laughs> you know, can I maybe help you? Uh, don't you want to go home and, and have Sabbath? Uh, do you want to give me a hand? <laughs> like, can, uh, can I help you with anything? Right? It must have been really, really awkward. So they were there last, which means they went back to the disciples with the testimony that he was definitely buried. We saw it. He was buried in that grave. That's important. And then they had dinner at the end of Sabbath, which was the Saturday night. And can you just imagine the woman saying, oh, guys, just a, a note, we're going back there tomorrow morning. Oh, ladies, I don't think you guys should do that. I mean, they put more guards at the grave. Uh, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. And then the woman saying, ah, we're going to do this. I want to go and see the grave. I'm not done grieving yet, so I'm going back. I don't care what you guys say. Now, the reason for this is women right, as a gender, couldn't qualify as witnesses in the first century. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And that's not even a rabbit hole. That's like a water goal, right? So we're not going to go into that when it comes to first century culture. But what I want you to see is they became the first proclaimers of this key thing. And that is, he has risen, we is risen, and we saw that. Now, think about it. The disciples had to rely on the women's testimony which means that they also had to believe them. Now, commentators say, and I actually wrote this down in my notes, they say that all this supports the historical reality of this portion of Scripture. Let me read one more sentence to you. No invented story in that culture would have given the women such prominence and entrusted the first proclamation of the resurrection and indeed the initial witness of it to such questionable witnesses, okay? That means if you wanted to fabricate a story and you wanted to communicate it and let it go viral as real, you wouldn't have used women as key players because anyone else outside of that little group of disciples would have said, ah, this is all gosh. This is women testifying to something that happened historically. Why on earth would we want to believe this? Whereas the Christian message says, I don't care what you think about women and women being witnesses. They saw it first and it's real and they encountered him. And because we believed them, we also went and we also encountered him. It's true. We don't have to fabricate the story. It has happened. It's quite phenomenal, guys, if you think about it, right? So I just want to say big ups to the women in this portion of scripture 
as well. Interesting though, also another rabbit hole. I don't know what it is with rabbit holes this morning, but go and read 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verse 5. And you see Paul talking about the resurrection, and he doesn't say that women saw Jesus first. Just putting that one out there, he said Jesus appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's other name, and then the others. And he doesn't say that he actually appeared to women first. Very interesting. There's a lot of cultural dynamics going on there. Okay. What I want you to see, though, just historical fact, I said we're going to face the facts first, is if the tomb that Jesus was buried in, right, had not been empty, it would have been impossible for the church to proclaim the resurrection. Okay. So those two things go together. The empty tomb and the encounter with Jesus himself. Like I just said, he appeared to the women first and then to the disciples, which in this case was 11, because we read the story of Judas's death uh, just in the chapter prior to this one. Okay. I already said that the empty tomb, even though it is very impressive and even though it is very important, isn't sufficient evidence uh, in itself for the resurrection of Jesus. I already said the only thing that can be decisive for us as Christians is reliable eyewitness testimony that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that was given to us. Okay. Now, something happens to the women when they encounter Jesus. And that is they worship him. They fall at his feet. Now, there's a contrast there. Right? The gods are like dead men. The believers lie but it's a really, really intense emotion that they are feeling at that point, right? And the reason why they worship him, and this is important, I'll get back to that now, is because his resurrection vindicates all that he said and all that he did during his earthly ministry. Think about this. It proves that he was right. In the first century, the person that could uh, decide between life and death was the most powerful person there was. That's why the emperor or the Caesar was the most powerful person on earth, because he could just give the order for someone to die. And if that someone died, the emperor won. And it was the same with Jesus. Even though they knew that he was going to die, even though they knew that he had to die, in the end, in the first century, the person who said, okay, kill him, and then who killed him, was right in the end. But now Jesus is raised from dead, so now it shows that he is actually right. Okay, so it vindicates everything he said. And why did the two ladies, at least, and then disciples, burst of joy when everything that he said was vindicated? Well, guys, remember the story that Jesus told. Remember the promises that came from this Messiah coming to earth and saving the world. I mean, the story of the Old Testament and the ladies who saw him first, they were immersed in the story, right? Steeped in the story was that evil broke the beautiful world that God created. And God was on a mission to confront this evil from the word go. Even though it was allowed and even though it caused the fall, from the word go, God was confronting evil. From the word go, the promise was there for death 
to be defeated. From the word go, there was this expectation that everything is going to be made new and that we'll get back to paradise circumstances. From the word go, this human that was created Imago Dei in the image of God, supposed to be like him and to do the work that God set forth for him, was at this expectation that it'll change, that we will become new, that something new will come forth, that something will be, check it, check it, raised. That's the expectation of the whole Old Testament. And now it happened. And now that it happened, they just burst at the seams of joy. But they were also terrified and really afraid. I mean, think about this. Everything you ever expected is happening, but it's happening in a way that you absolutely don't have a category for. And think about this, guys. In common South African vernac, here's what Jesus said to them. Hey, think about that, guys. The text says, greetings. I don't know how many of you actually greet people like that. It sounds really nerdy. Man. It sounds really formal. I mean, can you imagine if you guys pitch for Easter lunch today and I go, greetings, Gatleys. Right? It's going to feel so formal. But I'm just going to say hi. Hi. Hey. What's up, guys? Hey? That's what Jesus said to them. And it feels like fear and terror on the one side. And it feels like extreme joy on the other side. Why? Because something happened with you that you've never experienced. But it means the world to you. Now, I know that not all of us have families. I know that not all of us have been at the birth of a child. But I've been at two births of two kids called Ava and Katie. And that's really, guys, the only experience that I can think of that gave me this feeling of fear and terror on the one side, but also joy on the other side. Why? Because I've never seen this happen. I don't have a category for it. In just a few seconds, this human emerges, <laughs> this brand spanking new human emerges from the body of your wife. It's really intense. But then you look at this new human and you go, that's so great. Why? Because it's such a beautiful gift that was given to me. I've got no idea what to do with this little human, terror and fear, joy on this side, but she's ours. God gave it to us, you know? And now I have to cut the umbilical cord. Got no idea how to do that. But look how cute she is. Right? It's like this roller coaster of emotions the whole time. It happened to me at the birth of our kids. That's the experience that those two women had. Why? Because it's exceedingly clear now. It is exceedingly clear that Jesus was not only a very special human being, a sage and a teacher, but that he was God that he was God's promised Messiah, and that everything he said will happen from this point forward, will happen. What a joy to get that confirmation. I mean, the booking of a holiday, like I said earlier, will never ever give you that joy. The birth of a kid gave me a little bit of that joy. But just think about the fact that everything that this person promised to you in his earthly ministry is deemed to be true now because he showed it to be true. Now, guys, that changes everything. It literally changes everything. And you need to decide if you want to believe it or not. And if you do believe it, it will literally change your life. 
and we'll double click a couple of those ways that it will change your life now. Just want you guys to see that in the New Testament, that's the claim that the Christians made. That's the claim that the church makes. That's the claim that we still make today. There's something else going on here in this world. And that something else is a new creation emerging. That something else is a new kind of humanity being born. That something else is a new family of God being established. That something else is all things being made new and all new things emerging from God's creation. That's what I'm claiming as a Christian. That's what you're claiming as well. That's what the church claimed in the New Testament. And it's all because of the resurrection. Now, we can pause here, okay? We could say, I know, kind of a six and a half proper job sermon. Thank you so much for unpacking that for us. And then go home. But here's what I want to submit to you today. And then we'll get into some hardcore application of this piece of text. For us to believe the doctrine of the resurrection, for us to believe the historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, for us to believe the proposition that he once was dead, but now he's alive, that he ascended to the heaven, that he poured out his spirit over us, and that he will come back one day, like we just sang in Cornerstone. That's only half of the significance of the resurrection. It cannot stay head knowledge. It has to seep down from the head into every fiber of our being. Why? Because the New Testament writers speak about the resurrection when they speak about other really important things about the Christian faith. And here's what I want to show us. Just a couple of things. So the New Testament writers say this will happen. This is an implication of the gospel. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're hoping in. And as they write, the reason they give for all these things is the resurrection. That's why we need to understand not only was it this historical thing that happened in the gospel of Matthew chapter 28, the one we read this morning, but it has implications right, right the way through. So what I'm going to do, like a proper job, reformed theologian, is we look at the gospels. We will look at the epistles and we look at the revelation. And then I can say, drops iPad, leaves, I covered the whole New Testament. Now that's biblical theology for you. So guys, a few things. Firstly, the resurrection gives us a new vision. A new vision. Okay? So I said an empty tomb equals new everything. This is the first new everything. Think about the gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two people who were in Jerusalem at the time of his death, hearing all the news, witnessing everything that went down there and going back home and not seeing Jesus for who he is. There's something about the people on the road to Emmaus that made them blind to the true identity of Jesus. And once Jesus spends time with them, once he explains to them who he is and what he means, it literally changes everything for them. But what it needed was for them to leave their preloaded assumptions about Jesus. Okay? Truly seeing Jesus means that we surrender. Even our most cherished beliefs about the world, guys. Our most cherished beliefs about God. And allowing the cross and the resurrection to redefine reality for us. Now, this is something that will keep you busy for the rest of your life. 
But I do want to say this. It gives you a whole new vision. Luke 24 says, their hearts were warmed when they discovered who he is and what that means. So what is your vision? I mean, think about that. Hmm? What's your vision uh, for your life, for your career? Ah, the resurrection. Yeah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's my vision. Jesus, be thou vision. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But that's what we confess. That's what we sing. Secondly, the resurrection gives us a living hope. Our benediction this morning will come from 1 Peter chapter 1. So this is me jumping into the epistles now. Peter wrote to people who were sojourners in the world, who were in the diaspora, right? They were strewn out, I think that's the right English word, across the known earth at that point. And he says to them, guys, we have hope, we have hope, we have hope, we have hope. Keep hope, remain hope, be faithful to the hope. And what reason does he give for hope? He gives the resurrection. I don't know if you guys have ever read books, maybe even looked at documentaries of the Second World War. What's your knowledge of concentration camps and everything that went down there? What's your knowledge of uh, the extreme martyrdom, right, that the Jewish people had to undergo in that time? There's a book that emerged from that time called Man's Search for Meaning. It's by a guy named Viktor Frankl. It is a phenomenal book. And if you do uh, Google Viktor Frankl, go and make yourself four liters of coffee. He's going to keep you busy for the whole day, right? But here's what Viktor Frankl did. Is he looked at people in concentration camps and he asked themselves, he asked himself or he asked them, what is it that keeps you guys going? What is it that keeps you guys alive in these circumstances? And the answer was always hope. Now, as Christians, we have a profound insight into this hope because we know that our hope is connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we know him, because we have encountered him, we have hope. Think about this. We spoke about this last night around the dinner table. Our testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ has the proposition and the historical fact that he was raised from the dead. Some people might listen to that testimony and go, I don't believe it. Tell them about the fact that you encountered Jesus Christ. Because how is it possible not to believe that? Because he's alive. And because he's alive, I encountered him. And when I encountered him, he changed me in such a way that I have hope in the, even in the deepest despair I might find myself in. That is what I have because I encountered the risen Lord. Speak to people about hope in your testimony and they'll listen. We don't always only have to argue the historical facts and the propositions. Who's not looking for hope? I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine standing next to the road with a banner saying, uh, hoot, if you don't want hope, you'll have a really quiet day. Because everyone wants hope. And we have a hope in something that has happened, that has implications going forward. So because of the historical fact, I know it's coming. And it cannot ever be taken away or changed. Okay, so our new vision, a renewed hope or a living hope, what else is new? Well, think for a minute about Romans chapter 8. Phenomenal chapter in the Bible. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul literally retells the story of the Bible. Right? He starts at Genesis and he takes it all the way through 
to what we are expecting in Revelation. Obviously, the book of Revelation didn't exist when Paul wrote this. But he draws all of these images from the Old Testament to retell the story of the Bible. That's why, I mean, it's a phenomenal chapter to start it if you actually want to do the ABCs of Christianity. So in the story, he talks about slavery. He talks about God's liberation. He talks about moving into freedom. He talks about moving into the promised land. He talks about creation also wanting liberation. He talks about us crying out to our father uh, that wants to be with him, that's expectant about what's going to come next. He speaks about trials and tribulations and the way the creation is groaning, we also groaning. And what's the one reason he gives for why we have this hope, why we have this liberation, and why we see this future with God? The resurrection. So he just drops that word right in there. That is the reason or the proof that we can look forward to all of these things. Sticking with the Apostle Paul, if you ever want to see, I think, the most in-depth conversation about the resurrection in the New Testament, go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very long chapter. Read it slowly. Brew yourself something while you read it. Oh, and just as a qualifying remark, when I say brew, I mean coffee. Okay, I don't mean craft beer in your garage. <laughs> I, made the, I made the mistake once in America to say, going to make myself a nice brew, and then I'll get stuck in it. And the guy went, hey, hey Rhino, uh, is that brewing beer or coffee? And then I said, oh, I actually didn't think about beer. So I'm talking about coffee, right? Talking about coffee. So long chapter in the Bible, which is a really, really in-depth discussion about the resurrection. Okay. Obviously, Paul uses the word hope. And in that chapter, he actually ponders uh, the kind of physical body, right, that Jesus had after his resurrection. And then he ponders what that means for us. And Paul talks about what's the same, uh, what will be the same in the future, right? Uh, What amount of continuity do we have? And also what will be different in the future? Like to which degree will there be a discontinuity? And there's a lot of metaphors in that chapter. There's a lot of beautiful things that stir up our imagination. But what I want you to see in that chapter is Paul says, because of the way that Jesus was raised, because of the way Jesus was raised, after Jesus was raised, after Jesus' resurrection, and then, therefore, this will be our resurrection, and this is how it will work for us, and this will be the details of what we can expect. Once again, the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. And let me just say this in defense of Paul. Guys, historical fact. Paul never, ever saw Jesus as a human being. Never. Okay, so Peter did. Paul never did. Paul only met him as the risen Christ. Paul only met him as the exalted Christ. (laughs) Paul only met him as the Lord of hosts, the one seated at the right hand of God. And he said, with that, I cannot argue. That's kind of important because Paul's whole theology, which is a bulk of the New Testament, is built on the fact that Jesus was alive after his death. Right? It would have been possible if Peter wrote the whole New Testament that people could have said, yeah, but you know what? He spent three years in his presence and under his tutelage. I think this is all fiction. Paul said, I was on my way to Damascus and Jesus Christ appeared to me and he's alive. That's it. I'm telling you now, he's alive. All his followers have said he's alive. I didn't believe them and I persecuted them until I met him. 
and I promise you that he's alive, and I absolutely changed everything. That is a powerful, powerful piece of testimony. Let's get to the last thing. All things new and all new things. So the final pages of the Bible, which is the book Revelation, it's really important, no plural there, it's not the Revelations, it's Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, describes a new creation. Okay? So it's poetic visions. It doesn't have details for all the engineers and the left brains, right? It's poetic. And it describes how this new creation that we're looking forward to is both similar and dissimilar to the world that we are currently experiencing. Okay? So let me just explain that by virtue of two firsts. So think about this, guys. All through the Bible, we have God's space. It would have been great if I had a whiteboard here. Can you imagine? Through a little circle there, through a little circle here. So, but let me use my fists. So, God's space, human space, heaven, earth. That's how it gets described. It's important for us to remember that in the beginning of the story, God's space and human space overlap. They're together. It's called paradise. Like nothing can get better than this. Because of sin, God's space and human space were separated. But what's God's will from the beginning is to get these two back together. And that's what gets described in the last chapters of the Bible is how will these two spaces merge once again and be one. Some of it will be similar and some of it will be dissimilar. All things will be made new and we will experience all new things. Word gymnastics, guys, that's thick. And I, I actually have to give credit to uh, Timothy Mackey, yeah, the founder of the Bible Project. I didn't think of that line, but let me say it again. It's good. All things will be made new, and we will have all new things. And that holds the tension of this similarity and this dissimilarity. Now, by this point, if I would Bible quiz you and ask you, why do you guys think all things will be made new and we will have all new things? The answer is because of the resurrection. It's all bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No resurrection, no things made new. No resurrection, no new things. No resurrection, no new vision. No resurrection, no living hope. No resurrection, no liberation of nature. No resurrection, no hopeful groaning that everything in the end will be okay. No resurrection, no spiritual body that we can look forward to that lasts forever. None of it. It's all bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? For us to hear the witness and then to encounter Jesus ourselves and then to look back on this and to say, guys, this is true. And I'm believing it. I see the empty tomb. That's part one. But I encounter this risen Jesus. That's part two. And therefore, I can have no doubt that he was raised from the dead. And then it changes everything we are, changes everything we have. It changes everything we do. It literally permeates every part of our lives. Somewhere in the late what do you call like 2000 to 2010? I think you can call it like the early 2000s. 
probably. I don't know really how to name that decade. But there was a move on social media uh, called That's So, and then you fill in the blank. That's so yesterday. That's so Kanye West. That's so Will Smith. That's so Book van Blerk. That's so Cape Town. That's so last year. That's so, that's so, that's so. Do you guys remember? I mean, it was a vibe. It was a real vibe. And uh, what people wanted on social media was to be really, really sharp in what they compare stuff to. And I thought about my life this morning. I thought about early 21st century. Yes, thank you for that, Francois. I think you are right. Good call. I was thinking about my life this morning. Can you imagine if people see me being a husband to Marie and they say, that's so resurrection. Hey? Can you imagine if people would see me parent Ivan Katie and they'd say, that's so resurrection. Can you imagine if people would look at Fellowship City as a church and see our passion for Jesus and they would say, that's so resurrection. Can you imagine if we would live together as a family and share all of our stuff communally and bring people in, right, transculturally? People look at it and say, it's so resurrection. How awesome would that be, guys? Well, it would be because of the fact that we believe in the resurrection and that we allow it to transform our lives. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And therefore, we have a new everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the fact that we can speak to you now, that you are alive, that you are risen, and that we can encounter you. Thank you so much that we can hear that together as a community this morning. Thank you so much for the eyewitness accounts of two women who decided to go and check the next morning and who encountered you and who paved the way for us to do exactly the same. Thank you that the resurrection is so um, a-categorical that we can't really quantify it. it, it it's something that we just have to submit to and then see how it changes us. Thank you that it gives us all of these new things. And that's my prayer for us as a church, is that we would have a new vision, that we would have a new hope, that we would have a new expectation of the future, that we would have a new expectation of our own liberty and freedom that we would look forward to the day that all things are made new and that we would have all new things. Let this word settle deeply in our hearts, Lord Jesus. May we know you as the resurrected Christ. We pray that in your name. Amen.